Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh my dear brothers, sisters, friends and the foes out there and welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Didi Hussain. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to remind all the avid podcast listeners that you can find this show on all the major audio platforms. If you tune in via YouTube, make sure you click subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. Mashallah, today's guest is someone who I managed to get while he was in the middle of a very busy UK tour. He has come from San Diego in California, a prominent and well-renowned da'i with a followership and audience of millions online and offline, known for his engagements with Christians and atheists, and that's none other than Sheikh Usman bin Farooq of One Message Foundation. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Sheikh, how are you? Pleasure to be here. Honored to have you. Alhamdulillah. This was... Actually, no, we can't say it was supposed to because it's happened as the way Allah has decreed. Alhamdulillah. But we tried making this episode happen for a while now. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wrote it to be done at the best time, but definitely we were trying. Uh, the last two trips, I think we were trying, but Alhamdulillah, the UK has a lot of love and a lot of masajid and a lot of people that, you know, want to see each other. So, you know, when we go out, then these tours, it gets really crazy busy. Alhamdulillah. Honored to have you and thank you for making the time. Let me kick off today's podcast with just a few warm-up questions. I do this with um, scholars and du'at and people of knowledge uh, just to kind of get a, an understanding of personal rulings that you may adopt mm. in your everyday life on matters which also affects the awam. For example, what ruling do you adopt for travel distance? So I take uh, the classic opinion that is mentioned from the height of Ibn Abbas about Fort Burad, which is going to be about 47 Hashimi miles, about 80 some odd kilometers, because based on an actual narration, and this is the standard opinion used by many of the classic madahib like the Shawafi and the Hanabila and so on. So that's the opinion I take. And before I proceed with the questions I have, what, how do you as an individual, as in you've been raised or taught uh, in terms of rulings that you adopt, are you are you are you a madhabi? I'm asking out of ignorance here. Not no problem. I'm no, no, not because there's existing information. Feel comfortable. Ask anything you like. I'm I'm um, I'm not shy to answer anything. Trust me. You've seen the videos. I'm assuming so. You know, um, being raised, obviously, my family being from Peshawar, Pakistan, and a Pukhtun, Pakistani background, we were kind of taught to the Hanafi madhab, but standard. To be honest, my family didn't know the Hanafi madhab. They, I mean, to, if I asked any of my relatives what is Abu Hanifa's actual name, they didn't know. Um, they didn't know anything except whatever the Mawlana has taught them. Um, so, and, and again, being raised away from the community, I was raised, I, I don't know if you know my background, but I wasn't raised around Muslims. I didn't go to a madrasa growing up. I grew up with gangs and violence and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't know anything about madhahib. I didn't really know how to make salah correctly, at least, you know, whatever I saw family doing here and there. Um, when I began to study, uh, alhamdulillah, went through some madaris that were mostly the Desi, you know, Dars Nizami kind of a Are thing. Are No, no. Deobandi, Tablighi kind of a setup. Uh, when I traveled, I studied uh, like an Emirat and Rasul Khaimah. I studied the Mutun of the Hanbali Madhab. Okay. So my, I guess you could say, uh, serious studies once I really started uh, and getting deeper was through the Hanbali Madhab. Um, I teach Mutun of the Hanbali Madhab right now. 
So we taught like Afsar al-Muhtasarat of Ibn Balban al-Hanbali. We taught Umdat al-Fiqh of Mufuqdin ibn Qudama al-Hanbali. Zad al-Mustakniya of al-Hajjawi is what I'm teaching right now. Of course, as all Muslims should, my loyalty is to the Kitab and Sunnah. Uh, as Imam Abu Hanifa and Imam Shafi and Imam Malik and Imam Ahmad always encourage their followers to have their loyalty to the evidences from Qala Allah wa Qala Rasul mm-hmm. and I think this this divide between no madhab and madhab is kind of a, a new uh, clash that really wasn't found in the classic times meaning uh, right now in the in the ummah we have this idea that either you're a ghair muqallid, no madhab, madhab is shirk and bid'ah kind of a guy, or you are a ta'asubi muqallid that says, okay, my madhab is correct and everything else is wrong and no matter what, I'm going to defend it. That's not the classic way of, of the ulema of the past. This is what's divided us today. Mm-hmm. If you look at the scholars of the past, for example, the great imam, Imam Abu Hanifa, the great faqih, who I love and respect, his students, Imam Muhammad al-Shaybani and Qadi Abu Yusuf, disagreed with him in a good part of the madhab. When I, and, he, I, and, I, and again, when I used to go to Pakistan and things, I would sit in the rules of Hidayah. Even after I had studied other madhab, I just wanted to learn and understand. I sat in Dars al-Usul al-Shashi, you know, which is the usul al-Fiqh uh, used by uh, Hanafiya and so on. If you look at the madhab, maybe in two-thirds you will find disagreements between these three. Mm-hmm. Even though they were the direct students of Abu Hanifa and they loved Abu Hanifa, no doubt they're Hanafi in the sense that they were the ones that transmitted the madhab. But they, when they found their own evidences, they disagreed with their imam with respect. And Abu Hanifa, rahmatullah many times made ruju'ah. He changed his own view, like the issue of making masan socks, not leather socks, not khuf, but jawrab. If you look in al-Hidayah, it mentioned that the two imams, Abu Yusuf Imam Muhammad Shaybani, allowed making masha on non-leather socks with shurut, with conditions. Okay? And Abu Hanifa originally did not, but he made ruju'ah. And in Hidayah it says, alayhi fatwa. And the fatwa is, you can make masha on non-leather socks with certain conditions. Going to madrasa, I was taught the Hanafi madhab is, you cannot. You could only make masha on khuf leather socks. So they and we were told, nuance. we were told in the madrasa that I studied in, in San Diego originally, yeah. That if somebody makes mashah on jawrab, no matter how thick or whatever, you cannot make salah behind them. Salah is batil. Which is funny because that the actual Hanafi madhab is you can, with, again, and I want to be clear and fair, with certain conditions, right? Whether the water goes through. They have to uh, take uh, and distance, so on, walk distance walking, yeah. even though the distance is not mentioned from Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi or Abu Yusuf al-Qadi, uh, uh, Muhammad al-Shaybani or Qadi Abu Yusuf. Those are later discussions and amongst them. And, and amongst the Hanafi madhab, there are also those that disagree three miles or not, so on. But again, the point being, what we were taught was actually not the madhab, right? So, um, later scholars like Imam Malik, he has his madhab. And from the Maliki madhab, you have yani, al-Mudawwana and the, what's there, Ibn Abdul-Barr, yani, al-Tamheed and his opinion, they disagree, right? Sometimes, even the Imam Malik's stance. You have the Shafi'i Madhab, and you know I studied a little bit of the Shafi'i Madhab as well, you know, just to understand and appreciate, uh, you know, much of what we find being taught Mu'tamid, the reliable opinions of the Shafi'i Madhab, are the opinions of Imam Nabawi, and not the opinions of the Shafi'i himself, mm-hmm. Rahmatullah Alayhi. Yani, if you look at the Hanbali Madhab, for example, Imam Ahmad, 
He has many aqwal on things. You know, you'll find he has this rawaya, this rawaya. And then you have the likes of Mufaqdeen ibn Qudama. And then you have the likes of Al-Hajjawi and Al-Iqna'an. You have Al-Buyuti and Sharh Al-Muntah Al-Iradat. And they will sometimes disagree with what's even Imam Ahmad's opinion looking at the evidences. So, in my opinion, this... And again, I this is my humble opinion. I'm not saying this is a... This clash today that we have this harsh, like, either you have a madhab or you hate the madhahib or you defend the madhab no matter what. This is not the way of the earlier generations who, like Imam Hanifa, when he came to Medina, he sat with Imam Malik. He had no issue. He prayed behind him. Today, this idea, don't pray behind this and don't pray because they make masa and they make this. And this is something that's dividing the ummah and it's not healthy. So I do follow a madhab. Alhamdulillah, I studied to the Hanbali madhab. And I teach the usul and mutun of the madhab. But I, I do not make it that the madhab is a religion. It's a path. Madhab means a path. Mm-hmm. Yani it's a usul. Uh, uh, yani we, we don't take it that, okay, it's infallible. Only the Quran and what is sahih upon the Prophet والسلام, is infallible. So Absolutely. if the evidence in the Quran and hadith is strong, then I would leave the madhab on this issue. I'm not, I'm not saying... That Imam Ahmad, na'udhu billah, was yani a nabi or something, right? We don't overpraise these things. I personally found the Hanbali madhab in their usul and in their yani, sticking to the evidences and giving evidences to be uh, yani, a, a good path. And that's what I classically studied in, in the mutun that I studied. And that's what I teach. But that doesn't mean that yani, the Hanbali madhab is always right and the, I mean, other madhab were not na'udhu billah, yani, those are all great a'imma. We love them. We respect them. Of course. Anybody who follows any of them correctly, and not people who make up stuff in their name, but who follows them correctly, we have we love them equally. Like if I go to a masjid, the imam is Shafi'i or Hanbali or Maliki or doesn't follow a madhab or Shawkani, as long as he's Muslim and on the Quran and the Sunnah, I love them. I don't make any like, oh, I don't want to go to this masjid because they're Shafi'i. This is all dividing the ummah, which I think is horrible. Sticking to the Hanbali school, uh, what is the position you adopt or your understanding of the one who misses obligatory prayers knowing that it's obligatory? So uh, again, I think the the question that you're thinking about is the one who, who leaves off salah, tarkus salah, not somebody who misses salah. If somebody misses a salah, for example, yani you're driving and you know you want to pray asr, but you your time was running out and you couldn't stop or something, then this is a sin. But you're Muslim, alhamdulillah. You're talking about the one who's abandoned salah. Yeah. He, does, he or she does not pray. So that's a different okay, uh, question. And, and I, I know that's what you really wanted. So I just want to make that clarification. Okay. So somebody who misses salah on accident or even yani, due to being overly busy and, and whatever, and we, we say this is wrong, but they're Muslim. What right? about the one who generally prays five times but will prioritize something else over the waqt of salah? So, again, uh, when we talk about... I'm choosing not to pray at this time because I want to be doing this thing. So, so you have to be careful there, right? In the sense that if somebody... And this is not just a Hanbali Shafi'i. If, if somebody feels that something else is more important than Salah and this is what they state, that's a different issue. That's, now you get into Aqaid issues, right? But if we talk about Tarkus Salah, somebody who's abandoned Salah, it's meaning that they don't pray Salah at all. It's not that they miss salawat. It's not that they pray some salawat. Just don't. They, they, they're Muslim in the sense that they say the kalima. Mm-hmm. They say la ilaha illallah. They say, you know, uh, that they believe in Allah and the messenger in the last day. But they decide, 
I'm just not going to pray at all. Not Jum'ah, nothing. Even though they know it's far. They, they're not jahil of it. They're not, I mean, they're not incapable. They're, I mean, obviously, even if you're unable to move at all, you can still make salah with your eye movement or all that, right? Then the opinion of the Hanabila Mu'tamidan, and this is, I'm not just saying this because the Hanbali opinion. I, I believe this is the correct opinion according to the evidences. And this is the opinion that many of my teachers, that even though they were not Hanbalis, they took because of the evidences, and Shaykh Rasulullah ibn Taymiyyah took this view, uh, is that they are kafir. And this is not, not that I want to make takfir on anybody, but Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Man tarku salah faqad kafar, faqad emphasis. Any Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Bainana wa baynahum, between us and them, is tarku salah. Another hadith, Bainan rajul wa shirki wal kufr tarku salah. I mean, these hadith are explicit. They're very clear. And this is unambiguous. Now, the opinion of the majority, Imam Shafi, Imam Malik, Imam Abu Hanifa, and many of the Ummah uh, is, and the majority of the Ummah majority. is that they are not kafir. And I respect that opinion. And again, uh, it, when, when I state an opinion, it does not mean that... Committing a major sin. Yeah, they're a major sin. Major sin. But personally, from looking at... And, and I'll tell you one evidence that... And because I don't take opinions just because it's a humbly or this or that. I mean, I always want to look at the adilla, right? Like I said, the madhahib are a path and a tool, or a useful tool, but that doesn't mean that this is why we take it. We take it because qala Allah or qala Rasul If you look at the emphasis on salah in the Quran, the ayat, how repeatedly with iman and things have come, this is one thing. Then you have the hadith about salah from Rasulullah and the importance, and I've just mentioned some of them, and I don't want to go too deep, otherwise literally entire books have been written on this. But there is one evidence that really convinced me. And this is the statement of Abdullah ibn Shaqiq. And this is a tabi'i. And he says that the Sahaba, and like notice he did not mention Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali, Jamhur, Mij no, mutlaqan, all the Sahaba did not take leaving of any action to be kufr illa salah. Now this is what we call ijma sukuti, meaning when there's no other opinion given. So the ijma, the consensus of the Sahaba is mentioned here by a tabi'i saying that the Sahaba who he met, generally, not just some, I mean, if we had a call from a Sahabi saying, no, no, if somebody make tarqa salah, they're only sinful, then that would be different, but we don't. So when we see a consensus being mentioned of the Sahaba, now, if somebody said that this is about salah, somebody not considering it fard, well, if you don't consider fasting for your kafir, if you don't consider zakat for your kafir, right? I mean, that's not it. So when he mentioned that leaving just tarq of any amal, fasting and things were not considered kufr, they were considered major sins, illa salah, Except for that evidence convinced me that this is the correct opinion and this is the opinion that I take. Is within the school niqab fard? Okay. So, 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 so. Yeah, yeah, I got you. I got you. I know niqab is that. <laughs> um, Regarding niqab, if you look at the earlier books of the madhahib, they, they, I'm not talking about later, I'm talking about early, because I like to study the original. I don't just study later works. I like to go back to Qadi Abu Ya'la, and I like to go back to like the earlier scholars and their opinions, you know, looking at uh, everything back, uh, Ibn Mubrad and things like this. Niqab was discussed very differently than we discuss it today. It was, and, and this is in other madhahib as well. 
where it was discussed in a situation of fitan. Right? So Imam Ahmad, for example, he has very straight, and Imam Malik as well, very clear aqwal that he thought the whole woman was aura, even the nail. You know, very, very My next straight. question was, is the voice aura? We'll get to that, inshallah. So do two in one, answer both. Uh, we'll get to both of those, inshallah. So the opinion that we find that the niqab is wajib is there. And then this is what we find in well-known opinion, for example, in the later Hanabila. Like, for example, Sheikh Ibn Al-Thaymeen, Sheikh Ibn Baz, Sheikh Salih Al-Fawzan, and all these, uh, Sheikh Bakr Abu Zayd, they have written entire works saying that, no, it is obligatory. But you know, one thing interesting, in the earlier books, it's always tied to fitin as well. Like, and this is why even the Hanafi madhab, when I was looking at some of the earlier books, because many of the later Hanafis, they made a claim that niqab is not wajib. Even though the madaris we studied in definitely in the Uband and so on showed that it is. There is a strong premise for it. Right. But there are many statements in the later Hanafi books that you will find that show it that you the face can be seen and things. But the early books, what I did find very clearly, and again, I don't claim to speak on behalf of any madhab that I'm not classically trained in, is they said if there is fitna in a young woman, then definitely there is wajib. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very good point. Even in the Hanabila, if some, a woman is past childbearing age and she's older and she doesn't cover the face, meaning at that age, then there is jawaz for that. And we find that in the Quran, Hadith and so on. But if a woman is young, especially, and, and, and young doesn't just mean like a teenager, even young in the sense that people are still looking to get married to her and so on. And there is an issue of fitna, which we see in society today, yep. then definitely there is wujub there. Now, having said that, I mean, there are a'imma and ulema, and that I respect, that say that niqab is mustahab. And this is not an issue we should divide the ummah upon. If I see a sister that doesn't wear niqab, I don't consider her to be sinful. Why? Because she's following an opinion, and that opinion has evidences. And a'imma, even recently, like Sheikh Albani and others, they took this view. And classically, many a'imma and ulema, they took this view. And we respect that khilaf. Personally, I take it to be wajib, and that's what I see in the madhab. But I respect all my sisters, even if they don't wear niqab, because they are doing their best. And I do encourage them that even if they don't take it to be wajib, even if they take it to be mustahab, do something mustahab. <laughs> Why would you leave it? And in Sheikh Albani, for example, he took it to be mustahab, but his own wife and daughters wore it. Why? Because even if it's mustahab, you should do it. It doesn't mean that don't do it. You know, this is one of the problems. But as I said, I mean, we live in the West. There are sisters that are struggling. And if they take an opinion, because it has evidences, we don't want to look down upon them in any way. The voice. The voice. What is correct in Allahu Alam, and we see from the evidences, that the voice in and of itself is not aura. The voice in and of itself is not aura. But if it is softened, if it is made to be attractive, then it becomes aura. Which is very common in modern advertisements. Exactly. Even, I'm not just that. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to mention the names of any countries, but certain countries that you go to, the women, uh, even the Arabic they speak, they, 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 they mess with the tajweed to make it sound more soft. And the way they speak to their children is harsh. But when they speak to any man on the street, they, they, they prolong words and things to make it more melodic and so on. And that makes it aura. Why do we say the voice in itself is not aura? Because we see, I mean, I would say numerous ahadith where sahabiyat came in the presence of men and asked questions. And they would ask, for example, if somebody is home and 
sahaba that would go to the house of another sahabi if the woman answered they would ask even if you go back to ibrahim salam going and visiting any yani the house of ismail salam again the wife of ismail salam didn't know this is the father of ismail but he asked whether he's home and she answered uh, and we look at a hadith yani a numerous hadith where aisha radiyanha narrates a hadith to male sahaba from behind a hijab but she does and she asks questions and they ask of her and any other sahabiyat that asked questions of Umar radiyanu and so on. So this shows that in essence it is not. But as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran has told the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen and the believing women as an example for them not to soften the voice because it will increase the disease in the hearts of those that have it. This shows that when it is made like in songs or you know poetry or when you know, in advertisements, where, it, where the people try to make it attractive, then it becomes aura. And, and a beautiful evidence on how we should try to protect ourselves from that is even in salah. Even in salah, if the imam makes a mistake for the man, he says, subhanallah, the woman, she does this. She doesn't say subhanallah. So within the constraints of keeping it professional, limited to what's needed, without any... Uh, flirting or 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 making making the voice attractive, the voice would not be aura. If those elements are there, or flirtation or making it attractive is there, then it becomes aura. Smoking cigarettes, sheesh. haram. Cigarettes are haram. Uh, I know this idea of it being makru goes around, but if you look at the evidences on the harm that cigarettes do to a person, it's not like drinking coffee. But like, oh, sugar is bad for you. <laughs> Sugar has many positive things for you. Uh, coffee has many positive things for you. You, you don't see people regularly getting uh, throat cancer from drinking sugary drinks, even though, I mean, from a health perspective, you may not want to do it. But cigarettes from the known harms, throat cancer, lung cancer, cancer of the lips. I mean, what's insane to me is you look at the packs of cigarettes in some countries, I don't know about the UK, and they'll have pictures on them. Britain has pictures. Britain has it, right? The pictures are disgusting of what it does, and people still smoke them. And and I mean, I, I work in in the scientific industry. I mean, I'm by the way, I, I don't get paid for dawa. I'm not getting paid for this tour. I don't get money from OMF. I don't get money from my masjid. What I teach, what I do for dawa is only for the sake of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. I work a regular job, and it's not easy. But I work in the scientific industry, and I have read the the journals that have been published about the harms of cigarettes. It is undeniably suicide. I mean, again, people could say some guy smoked for 80 years and didn't die. Well, somebody could shoot themselves in the head and live. But the hard, and I've seen it. I mean, there's people I know that tried to commit suicide, shot themselves and lived, right? Life and death in the hands of Allah. But to shoot yourself in the head is haram. To smoke cigarettes because we know of the cancers and harms that it does, it kills, is haram. And this is a disease on the ummah. And may Allah forgive those ulema that, that yani, tried to say it's makru and so on from the harm in the Muslim countries that we see daily from smoking. When you go to Muslim countries, you see daily people lighting up and children inhaling and secondhand smoke and people going, I mean, you go to the hospital of some of these countries and the numbers of lung cancer and throat cancer that's killing people every day is insane. Is all seafood permissible? Again, out of respect for the other madhahib, uh, I do want to be clear. I only ask what you adopt and I know, and what, what you understood in your school. I just want to, it's a given. I just want to show that respect because sometimes when I give a view, somebody who follows a different view might be upset by it. And we 
want to unite the ummah with softness. Um, in the Hanbali madhab, everything from the ocean is halal except for things that would hunt on land. So, for example, an alligator or a crocodile, or a crocodile that could and at times does hunt on land. A hippo would be haram. Well, I don't know if hippos to hunt on land. I, I, I don't know. They attack on land. I don't think they hunt. They don't. don't yeah, 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 they so, do definitely so, attack on land. Well, attacking on land is different. So even an elephant has tusks for attacking. Have you tried hippo? I have never tried hippo. I don't know where you eat, brother. <laughs> mashallah. <laughs> I got to go to the restaurant you go to, man. That's some exotic meat, mashallah. Hippo steak. Hippo steak. Have you tried it? No. Okay, I haven't either. Um, but, uh, like, again, I don't speak about what I don't know, so I've never looked in the issue of the hippo. But if he doesn't hunt on land, then it would be halal. But I don't know. But things like eel, the Maliki method, for example, they consider it to be haram because they think it's a snake. But an eel is actually a type of a fish, and it's from the ocean, and it would be halal. So shrimp is halal, fish is halal, anything from the ocean. The only exceptions would be if it is, and again, and, and, and the Quran talks about Sayyid al-Bahr, any that which you hunt from the ocean, it does not specify fish, for example. In the hadith of Rasulullah, which is mutawatir, it is through numerous chains, no doubt authentic, when he said about the Bahar, about the sea or the ocean, that hellu that it's dead, is halal. These are clear evidences that everything from the ocean is halal. Now, the exception would be made is if something like an alligator hunts on land because carnivores on land are not halal. Mm. So then that would not be from that of the ocean, inshallah. Sure. Um, eating McDonald's and general outlets in Haram. Muslim lands. In the Muslim land? Uh, no, no, sorry, sorry. Sorry, sorry. Sorry, sorry. So McDonald's and non-Muslim outlets in non-Muslim lands. Haram. It's not a case of Bismillah. It's not a case of Bismillah. No, this is, this is a, no look, the ta'am ahlul kitab that's in the Quran is halal. And there are ahlul kitab today. I'm not denying that. As And we on our we have a channel for our masjid called Masjid Ribat. One message foundation is our da'wah channel. Masjid Ribat's for Muslims. We have a video from Sheikh Salih Al-Fawzan that he clarified this issue because some people try to misconstrue some of the ulema and their aqwal from Saudiya because, again, you're looking at a general fatwa. It's a general fatwa, the meat of Ahlul Kitab. Jazakallah khair. May Allah bless you. Ameen. I'm a, I'm a tea fanatic. Ana, so, if you don't mind, I'm going to... I don't mind it. I did drink some water from my health-conscious San Diego brothers that are always pushing me to drink water. Now, keep yourself quenched. We need you for this. So, when you look at the Am Ahlul Kitab, the meat or the food, which again, as Mufassirin have said, laham, of the people of the book, it is halal. I don't deny that. It's in the Quran. It's in Hadith. Now, what is the difference between what we consider meita, that which is dead meat, which is murdar, as in Urdu we say, right? Which is, yani, for example, if I'm Muslim, as a Muslim, my dhab has halal, right? Mm -hmm. Now, as a Muslim, if I take a hammer and I hit a cow on the head and kill it that way, is my is that cow halal? No. Even though I'm Muslim? No. So today when in McDonald's and, and Burger King and, and, and KFC and, and if you're from Cali, In-N-Out, right? You have meat, the cows that are shot in the head with a nail. Now even if a Muslim did that, that wouldn't be halal. How is that ta'am ahlul kitab? They don't say the name of Allah in any language, right? What people don't understand, the dietary laws of ahlul kitab are all from the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't have dietary laws. The Old Testament dietary laws, which is the meat of Ahlul Kitab, is but what they consider kosher, kosher. today. 
Yeah. Where they have to say the name of God on it, even in their own languages, where they have to make the dabha on it. So kosher would be halal. You say bismillah on it and you eat kosher. But the meat that is served in the UK and the US is not kosher. It's not ahlul kitab. These countries are not Christian countries. I don't know, you guys have a Church of England kind of thing. They're secular countries. But they're sec- in the U.S., we have a, in the Constitution, we have a very clear separation of church and state. Same so in the U.K. Not, same with the U.K. It, it's, it's merely a, a, a ceremonial position that the Queen or the King signs the bill. Ultimately, yes. if they refuse to sign the bill, Parliament will pu- push it through anyway. And, and interestingly, I, I, I was reading some stats. I believe less than 40% of Brits today identify themselves as Christian. Oh, is it something like that, this? Something. That. Even if we take that in the U.S., yeah. you would say that most average people have nothing to do with Christianity today. They don't go to church. Average people. I'm not, I mean, I look. I grew up in the U.S. Right? They don't. If you ask them, "Are you Christian?" They'll tell you, "Well, maybe my family was." They'll kind of give you a big answer. You know, in the U.S., most people are not baptized today. Okay. You know, there's the Bible Belt and all that, but that's not the majority, right? And even if they were. Like I said, this meat in the West, the way it's slaughtered, is not the way of Ahlul Kitab. So we're, don't, don't, don't ask, close your eyes. Don't, don't, don't. Ahi, we live here. We deal with meat industries. You know, we know these things. There's videos that, you know, you know PETA? Have you heard of PETA? No. Uh, PETA's organization, uh, I think it's called People for Eating Tasty Animals. That's a joke. <laughs> uh, it's some animal rights organization, but, right? Uh, they have videos where they went into In-N-Out and, and all these uh, KFC farms and they videoed how they're killed. Chickens that are not slaughtered at all. Not, no, no, just thrown right into boiling hot water. Alive. I mean, they're, they're boiled alive. I mean, they're, they're stomped on. I've seen these videos with my own eyes. I've been to slaughterhouses that supply to these major chains and they actually have a gun, a nail gun that is manufactured specifically for killing animals. It's not for nailing the wall. It, it shoots a huge nail into the head of the animal. This is meta. Look, ikhwan fillah, especially in the UK, you guys have so many halal outlets. Why are you putting your salah and your dhikr at risk by eating haram? And even if there's khilaf, stay away from the khilaf. Zabha, halal is halal, right? I mean, in the US, we have a harder time, especially in the West Coast, of getting halal meat. But there was a time when I went and slaughtered my own chickens and lambs. And I, I didn't like shrimp and fish so much, but I started eating it because when I couldn't get halal meat, but I cannot risk my salawat and my dhikr. Rasulullah told us about the man who's on a journey and ulema have said that this is an indication that he's going for hajj. What is it covered with dust and he's raising and saying, he's saying, Ya Rab, he's making dua, but how will his dua be answered when he's eating is haram, when his clothing is haram? When, right? So eating haram can render your ibadat invalid. So, Definitely this meat in, in the local stores that is not zabha and is not kosher, is not halal, it's not tam ahlul kitab. The name of Allah is not mentioned on it. There is no zabha made. It's hit in the head, electrocuted and shocked to death. This is considered meta. Even if a Muslim did it, it would not be halal. And who do you know who's slaughtering in the slaughterhouse? Right? In a Muslim country, we have laws for this. Even in Israel, may Allah free Palestine, Amen. may Allah bring it back to as it is. Amen. We don't recognize the state of Israel. Amen. But even if you go today and the, and the occupied Palestine, they have laws that non-Jews and non-Muslims cannot make the dhabha for halal and kosher. So those are laws. America, we have no such laws. In UK, you have no such laws. So that slaughter man, very well, and because the majority of the country is not even considering themselves Christian, 
can be an atheist or a Buddhist or a Sikh. You know, I've seen a Sikh slaughterman. It's kind of weird because I think they're not allowed to eat meat, but, you know, but money, right? And I've definitely been to slaughterhouses in the U.S. And when I spoke to the people doing the slaughter, the majority that I spoke to were atheists. That's crazy. And so these people, they want to make an excuse to go eat McDonald's. Ikhwan have taqwa Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Three utterances of I divorce you in any state of mind. Is that considered divorce? This is a very deep and uh, you could say a heavily strong discussed issue. Uh, but the the way you stated the question, saying any state of mind, definitely not. Because when the ghadab al-shadid, when the extreme anger, where you don't realize what you're doing. Again, I want to be clear, not just anger. Nobody gives divorce happily. You know, Nobody comes home and says, mashallah, great dinner. <laughs> Honey, the tea was amazing. You're divorced. Yeah. No, that's not the way. Obviously, you're going to be in anger. So just being angry is not enough by itself. But some people have what we would say... Temporary insanity in America, for example. Rage. Uh, well, I mean, so in the U.S., for example, if you kill somebody, you can fight that saying you were temporary. We plead insanity, like we, we, you were in such a rage that you really didn't even realize what you're doing. Like you woke up again, you were like, "What? I didn't. I don't know what I did." Right? If it's such anger, where the person did not even recollect what they did, like their mind was gone then that would not be considered. If they were in their state of mind where they did understand what they're doing... A fit of rage. Well, again, anger. So I just want to clarify between anger that would make you where you blank out. And like, you know, I, I know people myself that I grew up with... Anger which you're conscious about. When they got angry, they would beat somebody up almost to death or sometimes... <laughs> and then when they came to their senses, they would have no memory of it. Right? Well, some conscience. I mean, they, some awareness. Yeah. So if you are aware of what you're doing and you give three talaq in one sitting, the classic opinion of all the four madahib is that here it counts. Right. And there's evidences, obviously, for that. Um, the, and Umar Radian, he gave this hukam. Uh, an opinion within the Hanbali madhab, and this is the opinion of Sheikh Osama bin Taymiyyah says that it does not count. And they give the evidences from Rasulullah sallallahu himself and the time of Abu Bakr radiyanu. And even a call from Umar radiyan that when he counted three as one, it was to kind of warn the people from abusing this. When he counted three as three. Right? But earlier, those would be considered as one. I personally uh, am still on the border for this issue. Because I've read uh, the opinion of those that take that these three count as one, and their evidences are very strong. And I've read the opinion of those that say these three count as three. And obviously, since this is the Jamhur, they have their very strong evidences as well. I personally don't give hukam in the issues of divorce. Meaning if somebody comes to me with this case, I refer them to senior ulema because divorce is a very sensitive issue. So the shiuch that I studied with and I respect they took that if somebody gives three divorces in one sitting, it counts as one divorce. And this is the opinion they take. And this is what I lean towards. But personally, because the khilaf is such a strong khilaf, I would leave this to other people of knowledge to answer. And I would say that I'm not qualified to give that answer. Last question. Uh, when a non-Muslim says, Assalamu alaikum, can we say Wa alaikum assalam? 
the best is to just say wa alaykum. Okay? When someone, a non-Muslim says assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah wa assalamu alaykum, say wa alaykum. Because of the clear ahadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi regarding when the Jews were trying to switch it up to some of the wording, and Aisha radiyan responded to them harshly, and he said, just say wa alaykum. And other ahadith that show to that effect, this is the best. Ibn Hajar Asqalani explains that if the person, non-Muslim, is not intended to change words and things, even if you say wa alaykum as it's permissible, and that's an opinion. But the safest opinion, the opinion I take, is you just say wa alaykum. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. That wasn't so quick fire, was it? Well, it was fine. But look, the reason why I ask you those questions is because there is a conception, there is a conception generally associated with Salafi inclined du'at that, you know, they're not necessarily so learned, have depth, respect, appreciation for the Madaib. Yeah. And mashallah, from this engagement that we just had, which we kicked off the podcast with, it shows that Sheikh Usman has a level of depth and appreciation for the Madhabs. I mean, I consider myself to be a very minor beginning student of knowledge. Uh, I am nowhere close to where I would consider myself a mujtahid or even a alim or even a sheikh. I have never called myself a sheikh. Yes, I mean, online you see those thumbnails. I don't make any of them. Those titles, I don't make any of them. Look, uh, if you go to, when you talk about Salafiyah, people confuse the idea of sticking to the way of the Salaf al-Salihin, which I believe all Muslims should aspire to. And aspire to. Yeah, absolutely. And fiqh. Some of the, and, and this is the, the mistake of some of our du'at uh, and tulab ilm in the West, where they kind of gave this image as if being Salafi means that you're against the mazahib. But when you actually go and sit with the halaqat of the ulema, whether in Kuwait or Saudi or Pakistan or other places, you will learn that that's not the case, right? And again, uh, India, Pakistan, there is another story, and I don't know if you want to get into um, the whole Ahlul Hadith and Hanafi clashes that go on. But, I mean, I, I have, alhamdulillah, books. I love books. That's my passion. Um, I mean, if you've ever seen a picture, view, or tour of my library, it's not that I have the biggest library, but but I love my library. Every book, I, I research the muhaqqiq, and, you know, even on the way here, Adil was uh, driving with me in, I was watching videos of shiuch talking about different books and their print and so on. Mashallah. So when you go to books like Sharh al-Mumti' ala Zad al-Mustakni' of Sheikh Muhammad Saleh ibn Uthaymeen. Ibn Uthaymeen, I'm sure you know the name and in his Salafi du'at will mention him. He's Hanbali. And I'm not saying he's a muqallid. Right? Because he's a sheikh. He's a very high level scholar. But he does follow a madhab. And he teaches the mutun of that madhab. And he refers to the Hanbali Madhab as my Madhab. Right? If you look at Sheikh Abdulaziz ibn Baz, his Aqwal al-Qlil, Sheikh Saleh al-Fawzan, the most classic of them. I mean, if you look at his books, he's very, very classically trained and he follows the Madhab. Now, again, no scholar should reject clear evidence from Quran and Hadith for a Madhab. I don't care which Madhab you follow. That is not the usul of any Madhab. Imam Abu Hanif, for example, he said, Ashal Hadith for al-Madhabi. Abu Hanifa, he said the strongest hadith, that's my madhab, mm -hmm. right? And that's been the way of the scholars of the early madhahib, uh, Ibn Kathir and others, when they saw uh, evidence, they would leave their madhab for the evidence. And Sheikh Ibn Uthaymeen and Sheikh Ibn Baz and Sheikh Saleh Al-Fawzan and Sheikh Ibn Jibreen and others, they, they're no different. But they teach mutun of the madhab. Sheikh Bakr Abu Zaid, for example, an amazing scholar from Saudi Arabia, 
that many of the if you Salafi du'at as you as you call them um, would be aware of. Read his books. He has a book called Madkhal Mufassil al Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal, uh, one of the greatest books written to serve the madhab of the Hanabila in our time. Two thick volumes talks about the books and classical, and yani, he clearly is Hanbali. Yani. But that doesn't mean that yani, he has a ta'asub to the madhab away from the Quran and Hadith. Right? So many of these du'at, they've put an image that's literally not correct. And if you actually go to the senior scholars, that's not what you find. This is more Western or sometimes in India, Pakistan as well, a clash due to, you know, whatever climate that is there, inshallah. So th- so that's, let's shift a bit away from school of jurisprudence and fiqh. Let's look at perhaps how dynamics change from an intra-Sunni Muslim perspective when we start looking at schools of creed and aqidah and schools of thought in that regard. And you've had a very busy schedule and, yes. you're, and, you're, and, and you're still on tour. We're speaking off camera. You, you're shooting up north again in Scotland, mashallah. Would you personally give a talk or a lecture uh, on dawah or, you know, reviving the youth or re- any, re- yeah, any subject uh, in a non-Salafi masjid? I don't even look at masajid as Salafi and non-Salafi. This is a strange. Our masjid in San Diego, where's the Ribat? We're Muslim masjid. If you come to my masjid, I don't ask your aqidah. I don't ask your fiqh. And you say, salam, you're Muslim. You're Muslim, come to the masjid. I mean, the UK, you guys have this like crazy, like hatred amongst some of the Muslims and uh, Alhamdulillah in the US, we're not like that, right? When I go to a masjid... Have you given talks on non-Salafi masjid? Of course, in the UK. <laughs> uh, I mean, again, and uh, we can talk about which and so on, but let me just answer the... I just want to say one more thing. I, there, there is no masjid in the UK, as far as I'm aware, that has a label outside saying, this is the Diobandi masjid, this is a Salafi masjid, this is an Ikhwan affiliate masjid. You, it's generally assumed by um, the, the imam or, or what the masjid adopts. Some are madhabi, some are yes, we are we are this, but it's never like out there in a, in, in a sign like. Well, I, I actually have seen signs, but but, but but not in the UK. Alhamdulillah. Khair, <laughs> um, uh, the well, even in the UK actually, but that's okay. Let's not get into that because my my point here being. If there is a masjid that invites me to speak and they are Muslim and I don't see like, for example, a qabr in the middle of the masjid and people making sujood to it, or I don't see them any promoting a clear bid'ah like maulid and so on, then obviously I'll go give a talk there, no problem, right? Now, let me go a step further. If a masjid uh, has some bid'ah and they allow me to speak without restrictions and I'm allowed to address the bid'ah, I will even go speak there. Right? I'm not big on this Deobandi, Brelwi, uh, Wahhabi and all these titles and things like this. Right? What, what if a message invited you and you know that you have differences with them on issues of Aqidah, but the specific address is to the youth to fix up? I mean, again, if if the issue, the, the subject there is to address the youth, I will address, but I do not accept from any masjid. I don't care, Salafi, non-Salafi any restrictions of what I can and cannot say. I'm not censored by anybody. If I say something against the Quran or against the Hadith or against the Ijma of the Ummah or against what the Ummah have said, come and correct me, I will apologize. No problem. But I don't accept restrictions from anybody. Right? But if any masjid invites me without restrictions to come and speak on a subject, alhamdulillah, more than willing. Right? And 
once again, uh, when we talk about uh, Deobandi and this and that, I've given speeches in many masajid which would align themselves with Deoband, and I have addressed issues, even issues that we sometimes disagreed on in those speeches, and I've addressed issues offline with many of those Iman ulema, and inshallah, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to give away too much, but there are uh, ulema who follow the school of Deoband that me and them have had offline private conversations on many issues that we would see a disagreement online one, and we've come to many issues where looking at the evidences, they have agreed to many of the stances that you would see clearly from the Quran Hadith. And I am planning, inshallah, uh, at least one, if not more than one podcast with some of these scholars to show the ummah, the world, that we can unite upon evidences. How about, inshallah, how about, inshallah, how, how about engagements with, um, not necessarily Barelvi, but you know, people of different Sufi tariqs, Gustan, Qadriya, Shadiliya. Why would we not engage? Uh, have you had engagements? Of course, yeah. Evidence-based engagements? Yeah, I mean, in San Diego, for example, we, we had a, a brother who followed the Barelvi school and he had a maulid in a masjid and I sat with him and I brought evidences, and I brought books, and he, I, I brought books all marked up with Quran, Hadith, uh, Hanafi fiqh, and everything, and explained to him how what is tawqif, and how Idul Adha and Idul Fitr are mentioned in Quran and Sahih Ahadith, how Rasulullah prayed it, how the Sahaba prayed it, and how Mawlid and Milad Sharif, or whatever they want to call, is not mentioned in the Quran, and not in Ahadith, and not the way of the Sahaba, none of the Sahaba did it, Abu Hanifa, and Malik, and Shafi, and Ahmad, the great A'imma, they didn't do it, and so on. And alhamdulillah, some brothers that I had this engagement, they listened. That's why in our city, I don't think any masjid does a maulid today, except for the rawafidah, the Shia, they do it. Uh, but, you know, some brothers chose not to listen, and we respectfully listen to each other. Okay. So, but, so can there still be brotherhood? Can there still be brotherhood with those who decide to do it? Look, uh, the the... Core of our brotherhood is Islam. No hate. Absolutely. Okay. Somebody makes shirk, they worship other than Allah, whether it's a grave, whether it's a saint, whether it's Ali Radianu, whether it's Isa ibn Maryam salam, with all due respect to Ali Radianu and Isa ibn Maryam, if anybody worships them, makes dua to them, there is no brotherhood. Because this is an issue of shirk. When it comes to an issue of fiqh differences, and I'm getting to the bid'ah, I just want to show the spectrum first, mm -hmm. right? where it's based on adilla, evidences. Let's say you say, I mean out loud. I say, for example, I don't, right? Which I do say, I mean out loud, but I'm just saying. If you say, Bismillah out loud in Fatiha, and I say it silent. Now we can disagree. We can look at evidences, but we don't break bonds of brotherhood for that. Whether you put your hands here, you put your hands here, you put your hands here. This is not something to divide the ummah on. When it comes to bid'ah, that's a different issue. If you are a mubtadi' who invites towards bid'ah, then this is a red line. And because bid'ah is something very serious. But if you're an average Muslim that maybe fell into it, not realizing, then we don't break brotherhood for it. We can sit and talk. Now, when something is a, is a khilaf from the early generations, right? like even on the issue of tarqu salah that we were discussing earlier, right? Or by istighata. Is the khatha, for example, if you are actually making dua to the one in the grave, this is shirk, right? But tawassul, for example, when you're making dua through somebody, and personally, I take the opinion 
that tawassul can be made through the asma al-husna, as it's mentioned in the Quran. Tawassul can be made with the dua of the salihin that are alive, like when Rasulullah told Umar radiyanu to ask Awais uh, al-Qarni to make dua. Tawassul can be made through your hal, when you say, Allah, look at my condition, as we see in many ahadith. Tawassul can be made through your amal al-salihat, through your good deeds, as the hadith of the three that were, tra- that were trapped in the cave and the rock, you know the hadith. Of course. So these are, cons- we don't see any khilaf on these issues. Alhamdulillah. Right? Now, the famous hadith from al-Bukhari that many people who do support the wasal also quote regarding the issue of when Rasulullah had passed away and Umar radiyan said, we used to make tawassul through the Nabi mm-hmm. and he told Abbas radiyan, go lead us in salah, istisqa, because of the drought and we'll make tawassul through you, right? This is, you know, people who, who say that you make tawassul to the Nabi, they mention this hadith, but uh, interestingly, this is a very strong evidence that we make tawassul through the living who are alive to make dua to lead salat is to Scott. He didn't say we're going to go to the grave of the Nabi who had just passed away alayhi salatu salam and make tawassul through him. Right? Wouldn't they, so, so just on the issue of we're talking about brotherhood. So what, break, what, what breaks Islamic brotherhood on Tawheed and on, on, the, on, the, on the creed of Islam? Like I said, the issue of shirk breaks. Right? Tawassul now, here there are ulema of the past, classic ulema, who took the view that you can, you can make tawassul through the Nabi alayhi salatu salam. His status, not to him, not dua to him, but through his status. And here, this is an issue of khilaf. I don't agree with that view. And as I mentioned to you, the evidence is right now. But this is not something I break bonds of brotherhood on. Okay. So look, a consistent theme thus far has been, uh, Shah Usman, is you, you've mentioned unity a fair amount. Yes. And I'd be dishonest if I said that a strong undertone of this entire engagement has been that we should actually be seeking uh, reasons to actually come together. I agree. Uh, then, then to cause division. Definitely. Can there be any meaningful Muslim unity without conformity in aqidah? So once again, when we talk about unity, there there's levels to this. Can I elaborate? Just be, go ahead, so, please. Because it'll help you respond. Please. So when I talk about unity, we we can look at local issues. We can look at issues pertaining to stuff that not only just affects Sunni Muslims, but it'll affect the Shia as well and others. Halal me, stuff like this. I'm talking about unity on the sense of a more uh, civilizational unity. That's, again, so th- that's a very good, I appreciate that clarification. Yeah, a civilizational unity. I got you. For example, issues that are affecting this ummah today, like the LGBTQ, XYZ, yeah. infinity sign, yeah. right? We, I would say, and this is not my opinion, I have gone to other people of knowledge who I respect, uh, for example, Sheikh Karim Abu Zaid and others that I'm on the tour with, and I have reached out to ulema in other countries, including Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and Malaysia, meaning I'm not just going to one country either, and I've discussed this issue with them. Regarding refuting that harm that is general in society, we can even unite together with kuffar. Meaning, and I'm doing an extreme because I'm going to bring it back, right? So in the sense that if there are Christians that are going to stand up against a school teaching the LGBT agenda and we stand with them in fighting that cause that you should not be forcing this on our children, we can definitely work together on that, right? It doesn't mean that we consider non-Muslims to be our brothers in faith and say we're not, I'm not going to let people take us to that extreme where they where they compromise their principles, right? Mm-hmm. 
Now, when we take it back, for example, if in, in countries where they're trying to shut down masajid and they're banning niqab and they're banning hijab, and here if Muslims who may have disagreements within the Muslim ummah, they may have disagreements even on issues of aqaid, come together to repel that harm that is going to generally harm the community, no doubt we can work together on that, right? I would take it a step further. I think, in my humble opinion, that as Muslims, we should try to unite further and we should come together and say, okay, let's look at the Quran, let's look at the Sahih Hadith, let's look at the Ayma Al-Arba'a, and what was their Aqeedah, and what did they teach, and, and what things are united in that. Right? Meaning, let's look at the Sifat of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. This is one of the issues that we found. Yeah. Major one. Majors. Yani. What did Abu Hanifa Rahmatullah say about them? What did Imam Malik say about them? What did the Shafi'i say about them? What did Ahmad say about them? Because these are the greatest A'imma. Right? I mean, we, we respect them. We talk about the madahib. In Aqeedah, what did they say? What did the Sahaba say? I mean, they believed in them as they were. If me and you say, look, whatever Allah said about himself, whatever Rasul said about Allah, we believe in it as it is, without asking how. We're not going to get into the how of it. Kefia, we don't need to discuss. But the issue becomes the how. The but, shit, but that's, smile, but the, that's hands, the whole the point. And... We do not ask kayf. This This will unite us. Bila kayfiyya, right? Because this is the way the Sahaba took it. They said, look, Allah said it, we believe it. Allah said it, we believe it. Why do we need to get into the kayf, right? This will unite the ummah. As the earlier imma ulema were united in their aqidah for this. When we get into, no, no, a hand like a human hand, billah, but people that were just a man stuff, this is where we start dividing. When you start saying, no, hand doesn't mean hand, it means nusra, and you start giving another meaning, and look, the earlier uh, imma didn't go into this. They said, look, Allah said, yad, yad, khalas, we don't need to get into the how. This will unite us together as an ummah. And we hope for unity, inshallah. I'm going to just name some things to you, situations. Let me know if you, be, if you feel that they are valid causes for Muslims to unite. Um, I, think, I think Muslims should always be united, but go ahead. You, you mean... Uh, even when we have khilaf and yes but even when there's difference, yeah, yeah. creedal differences sectarian differences these kind of things um, Islamophobia of course uh, counter-terrorism laws that specifically surveil and attack one type of Islam so for example during the let me tell you what, during the 9-11 period it was all about Salafi Salafis yeah. jihadism then now in the last 5-10 years it's been Diobandi Madrasas it's been about the Madaris what's being taught in the school so I'm saying that First, they come for a particular group, but, but but ultimately, the law itself is attacking Muslims. I, I think to add to your point, um, usually they only throw even till today. It's all even the Dubandi Madaris that get uh, any scrutinized. If you look at the news article, they call them Salafis. <laughs> yes, uh, and in in the U.S., I was on a on a radio show a long time ago uh, about Islam, and they were talking about the Taliban being Salafis, Salafi, yes. Wahhabists, and so. So to the, to the Western mindset, Salafi just means you stick to Islam. So if you're sticking to the Quran and Hadith and Hijab and beards and Salah and Masjid and Madaris. Believe, believe in Sharia, believe in this. Believe in Sharia and Hudud, yes. you're Salafi. Yeah. You're a Salafist. I don't know why they ask a T to everything. Yeah. You know? There's no Tamar boots out there. You know? <laughs> Salafist, you know, Wahhabist, you know, Islamist, you know. Anyway, so, so what I would say is there, if, if people are trying to shut down Madaris that are teaching Quran, of course we should stand up against that because their issue is not an uh, issue of 
kalam or sivad that they're, they're actually against the Quran. If people are trying to shut down Salafis and what they really mean, obviously, by that are brothers like yourself that go to the masjid and make salah and have a beard and, and your wife wears hijab and things like this, then of course we need to unite against that. And I, I would take it a step further. I mean, I would say, look, uh, even when we have khilaf between each other, we need to take it civil and discuss these things amongst ourselves offline. You know, as you may know in the UK, I've been attacked by many, many different people who have sat there, tried to find faults and make fun and things. And I don't watch any of their stuff because I don't have time to waste. I've never made a video against them. I've never wasted my time. Even brothers from different spectrums. You can go to brothers yani, who consider themselves super Salafis that made videos against me and people who consider themselves Deobandi or Brelwi that made videos against me. You've never seen me attack them in a video or call them out by name. Even though there are brothers here in London that have offices here that brought me all kinds of their mistakes and their Arabic mistakes and videos of their teachers. And I said, Wallahi, I'm not going to post any of that because I want to see a united front of the Muslims, especially in front of non-Muslims. Mm -hmm. Look, uh, sometimes I need to be clear about what you believe or what I believe, and I'm very explicit on what I believe. I don't hide my aqidah, I don't hide my fiqh, I don't hide my manhaj. I'm clear on the Quran and the Sunnah and the way of the Salaf al-Ummah. I have no ambiguity about that. At the same time, if me and you disagree, I'd like to talk to you offline. You know why? Because as an ummah, when we put this stupidity out there of trying to attack each other and this drama, it hurts the ummah, it hurts our youth, it hurts the da'wah, it hurts those those kuffar that were coming close to Islam. Can I ask you something? Yeah. yeah even though it wasn't part of the chronology of when I was what going to ask. Ask away, brother. You say that, but when you had that engagement with Baba Daniel Harikachu in uh, November, last November, at the AIM conference. Yes. To some outsiders, it may come across, or perhaps it did come across, a bit of an inquisition. Okay. Good. Why? why Valid question. Let why, me explain this. Why did you feel the need to have that engagement on camera? First and foremost, uh, our brother Daniel, may Allah protect him and help us and uh, protect us. Amen. We had, and Sheikh Karim is a witness to this. He's here in the UK right now. You can ask him. We had talked to him offline. We had discussed everything. And we had even had a podcast between us three before that, clarifying some of his stances. Some of the statements that he had made, again, we had women that had sent Muslim, munaqtabad, muhajjibad, good Muslim women, that had sent us tons of emails and letters about some of the statements that he made about women that they thought were against the Quran hadith. We wanted to clarify that issue. He had made some statements calling out particular rulers by name. Not not ambiguous. I mean, we make rad of any haram anywhere in the world, but things that were clearly and he calling out things that would be very specific to a particular king and country and so on, where it can cause great bloodshed and harm in the Muslim ummah. And he had made some statements ambiguously, for example, saying that he's a fanboy of Deoband and so on, that we wanted him to clarify because as you know, and you live in the UK, within Deoband there are different aqaid. And, and I have spoken to many Deobandi ulema about this issue. There is Mamati, there is Hayati, and there is other khilaf. I mean, if you look at Deoband.org and you look at the fatawa, sometimes they, they're not. And like, I mean, it's a madrasa, right? Like Medina University is a, is a university. Graduates from Medina, they come out. There's a big range of it, right? We wanted him to clarify what he meant by this offline. 
he requested that to be in front of the camera, not us. Ah, okay. And this is a big misunderstanding. And the reason we haven't made videos clarifying because we don't really want to fan the flames on these issues. Okay. That day I was speaking and brother Wasim Ismail was Many wouldn't have known that. People would not, and I appreciate you bringing that up. Because if that, because some would have seen as an ink, well, why Sheikh Mohammed sticking would, on him like that? I would agree with you that that definitely came out. We we all agree that it was not the way we should have done it. Things. Okay. It is not the way we wanted to do things, and it's not the way we planned to do things. He wasn't supposed to speak. There was no panel that time. Our brother Wasim Ismail was supposed, to, or uh, I think he was speaking after me. Sheikh Karim is a witness, and we can call him, and you can ask him. Him and Sheikh Karim spoke, and he asked for the panel. To be public. And all we wanted to do was to clarify. When If I was to say that I'm a fanboy of Medina, uh -huh. graduates, it would be your haq to tell me, hey brother, do you mean Dr. Yasser Qadi? Do you mean Sheikh Fulan? Do you mean, right? You, you could ask me and I, I have which no... Spec which spectrum of Medina University graduates? Of I, course, you, right? Okay. Now again, that's no disrespect to Jamia al-Medina itself, but there are graduates from Medina that hold very strange views nowadays, you know, and again, I'm not trying to call out uh, the Dr. Yasakadi by name, no, no, but, but he, is, he is a graduate of Medina, right? And and they're, they're Dr. Tahir Wyatt and others who I would agree have different views, and there are other graduates, obviously in the UK, that would have very different views. So when he said, I'm a fan, why well, we just wanted him to clarify, right? And obviously you can see from the interaction that he didn't know what the Hayati, Mamati, and what all that was about. And again, uh, this was not meant to be done publicly. First off, it was at his request. Because one of his secondly, because one, one of his responses, sorry, because one of his responses was that similarly, there's a spectrum of Salafis. Of course, and again, which you just mentioned, of yourself. course, and we are very clear. For example, the Khawarij of uh, any Daesh and others who kill people, they also claim Salafi. They do, and we are very clear in condemning that. Right? When Doctor Yasser Qadi, and again, uh, I didn't really want to bring him up personally, but. When he stated his issue about istikhatha and so on, Sheikh Karim Zaid was very clear in refuting that, and he wrote books on it. Yeah. Personally, I'd rather talk to him offline, but and and I have, and we do. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Uh, you know, when he mentioned the issue of birthdays, for example, when Noman Ali Khan recently mentioned about music, we're very clear in coming out and addressing those, and condemning those, and clarifying those. That's all we asked for. That if you're gonna say that, clarify. You know, what are you saying? Because even on the issue of Wahdat al-Wujud, amongst the ulema of Dilban, you will find a range of opinions, right? So when you say you're a fanboy of Dilban, which aspect are you taking? Because the average person that respects you and doesn't know, and again, it's not an issue of Dilban, it's an issue of the, of the issue itself, right? And I have many scholars that I speak to, that I respect, that I discuss with, with evidences, that are from Deoband and we come to agreement on many issues and we hope to present that to the Ummah soon, inshallah, and to show a unity amongst the Muslims based on the Quran and the Sunnah without any compromise, inshallah. Right? But there are others who hold very different views. I, here in the UK, and again, I'm not going to mention names or places, I was in a city where there were two masajid that both followed Deoband right next to each other and I was you know, in the area and I was speaking to people from that congregation and they were warning me about each other. <laughs> right? And again, uh, this happens with, with brothers who call themselves Salafi as well. Yeah, that we'll see from Brelvis as well. Go, happens in Brelvis as well. In Pakistan, I studied in Pakistan, I lived in Pakistan. 
there will be a mamati and hayati dibandi masjid right next to each other with speakers pointed at each other, calling each other out all day long. So, if you, my, my brother Delhi, if you said, I'm a Umm al-Qura uh, fanboy or a Medina fanboy, and we have graduates from there in the country that are preaching something very different from others, for me to ask you to clarify that is not something unreasonable. But the choice to do it on camera, you are saying was done. Once again, and, and again, I'll, I'll give you Sheikh Karim's number. You can speak to him himself. This is a, a clear thing that he is the one that requested it that way. We would not have wanted it that way. We did not want it that way. And it was not an inquisition. We spoke to him offline. It was meant to be a clarification. But unfortunately, it did not clarify and caused more fitan. And we, we ask Allah to forgive us for any mistakes that we made. And we ask Allah to unite the ummah and come back to it. And again, since then, one of the positives, I have been engaging with many ulema who have graduated from Deoband and I've presented them many evidences of things that, for example, we would disagree on. And we've come to an agreement on a lot of them, looking at the clear evidences. And we hope that when we present that to the ummah, it will be a point of unity. Shall not. Um, histor Friday Islamic history, Sheikh, yeah? Um, the issue of Muslim unity or Islamic unity was always, again, to bring it back to my initial point, was civilizational, right? So, after the Khilafah al Rashida, um, it went into pretty much chaos, uh, even during that period, to the tail end period. And one could argue that for the best part of a millennia, the vast majority of Khulafa and Sultans that we had were upon a creed that many would, many at least from a Salafi persuasion of today, and some scholars of the past have written about it, uh, were of an Ash'ari creed or a Maturidi creed. They had, uh, they allowed certain practices to thrive and, 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 and exist. Some of, it, some of the stuff was being taught from the very institution, academic Islamic institutions and seminaries. So in terms of Islamic political unity or Muslim unity, so we talk about Muslim unity, can we have a Khalifa? Can we give bayah to a Khalifa who you believe their aqidah is wrong? So there's this two or three parts of that question and I want to make some clarifications. One, to say that the Khulafa for the vast majority have been Ashari or Maturudi, I'm not sure that's a fair statement. I know this gets thrown out a lot. But those khulafa didn't write books in aqidah. They had ulema from different madhahib, different aqaid around them. Like Salahuddin Ayyubi is given a, a, they did. This all is the true. time. This is true. But I mean, Wafuqdin ibn Qudama and Hanabila and Athariya were also uh, yani, very active in that battle against and many of their of advisors, ulema, but were we, not Ashari. So, we look so, at the Ottomans, the Mughals, the Seljuks, the I, I mean, when we go to the Ottomans, for example, uh, especially towards the later part of the Ottoman Empire, which really wasn't a khilafa, I mean... Right, uh, you have practices that are extremely anti-Islamic. I mean, I mean, murdering your own kids in front of you and stuff. I'm sure you've read history, so I, I don't think they were worried about aqidah. <laughs> the Mughals, for example, I mean, I don't think uh, maybe other than Aurangzeb, you could make an argument. Um, I don't think any of them knew what aqidah was. I mean, uh, Babar was any famously a drunk partier. I mean. Uh, Hamayun was very... I mean, I've studied history. Like, you can't pull these things on me, right? Akbar made his own religion, right? And Dini I don't think he well, was... Because is a kafir, more or less. The scholars so, are so again, to be a kafir. I mean, uh, I'll let you make that takfir, but I'll back you on it. Right? Yeah, and, no, and, and I agree with you, yeah. right? Uh, what I'm saying is, 
that to say that the Mughal were uh, uh, Khulafa that were Ashari or Maturudis really a stretch because I don't think they knew what those terms okay, were. Uh, right? I'm glad you pulled me up on that. Yeah, Let okay. me reframe. The type, the version of Islam that thrived and excelled and spread during these periods was of a particular kind. So therefore... I, I would again disagree with that. Right? Really? Because, yeah, of course. Let me explain why. When you look at the Abbasiya, Mawiya, uh, you see a spectrum. Right? And I mean, most of the ulema during that time, and including, you know, about the Mahna of Imam Ahmad yes, and, and what happened and so on, the imma uh, and ulema of those early times were Athari, right? Imam Shafi'i, for example, himself and so on. After that time, you had a wide mix of every different time. Obviously, as you know, Ibn Taymiyyah and his time of jihad and those yep. khulafa that backed him and so on. And I mean, others, Mufaqdeen Ibn Qudama and others, I mean, we can go Ibn Rajab, Ibn Mubrad and those that they gave nasiha to their imma and ulema. Ibn Kathir, for example, is Athari and his, 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 yani, influence of the ummah and so on. So, I don't think you can give one brand to any of that. And most of those kings, they're muluk. And these, are, these were kings. These were kingdoms. Uh, I mean, many of them didn't even take bayah, but not going to get into the history of that. Most of them weren't really worried about religion, to be honest. Right? They, were, they were worried about their kingdom. They would fight other Muslims. They would kill other Muslims. They would make practices that I think even the uh, Ashari and Maturidi Aqaid would disagree with. I mean, there were marriages to thousand women and things like this, right? So, uh, I, I think this is not so. Uh, fair to say that the most. So, so let me let me just finish on this. Yeah. So what I would say is that the point here is a little bit different. So this is the first thing I want to clarify: is this statement that's thrown out that the majority of the Ummah is this or the majority of or, or Salahuddin Ayyubi was Ashari. Did he write a book in Aqidah that I haven't read or something? Like, you know, th this is something you're insinuating because of some of the ulema that were around him. Having known that there were other ulema around him and that had madaris under his uh, khilafah or kingdom, whatever you want to call it, that were Athari, that he also permitted and, and he promoted and so on. So this is not a, a, a fair statement. But, but I, I'll take it to the point that I think you're trying to make. Even if a mubtadi'ah, a person of bid'ah and somebody who would disagree with even worse than just minor things becomes a ruler and we see the united ummah under them, I do not believe in rebelling unless they're kafir. I do not believe in rebelling against them unless they're kufr. So even if somebody's a zalim, even if they're a mubtadi'ah, even if they do bid'ah, even if we have khilaf on issues of aqaid, as long as they're Muslim and they're in power, I do not believe that we take the bay'ah away or rebel against them. We unite behind them for the sake of the unity of the ummah. And this is what the ulema of the past and present have taught. One last question. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that she concisely mentioned that. Do you make a differentiation between Khulafa and Sultan of the past who did do jihad, did, did collect jizya, did establish Islamic courts and establish hudud, did collect the zakah, um, did these, uh, what's generally understood and scholars have spoken about, the obligatory acts of the Sultan in terms of the Qamuddin, as in to establish the religion on earth, right? Okay. So this guy, this Khalifa Sultan could be an oppressor. He could be okay. a drunkard. He could be, he could be many of these issues because he's doing all this other stuff and is ensuring that the frontiers are protected. That Bayar to him is very different to obedience to a nation-state ruler today who does none of that? 
So I think that's, again, a two-part question. One is, do I make a differentiation between them? Obviously, right? one is doing a lot more khair and one is doing a lot less khair or no khair, whatever, right? So, I got you, I got you. But I just want to be clear about this first, right? I want to say that we don't want to put them in the same boat because obviously one is doing a lot more for the That's what I'm saying. I don't want to put them in the same boat. Yeah. So, so I want to clarify. But <laughs> at the same time, I want to be explicit and clear that when somebody who is Muslim, right? Again, if he's kafir, if he mocks the Sharia, if he says he doesn't believe in the Sharia, if he mocks the Quran, if he clearly abandons Salah, when we talked about that, mm -hmm. then I don't consider them Muslim. But if they are Muslim, even if they're not doing all those things and they are in power, we need to obey them. And there, I know when I say this, some of the youth are going to be like, no, you know, wait, wait, right, you know. But when the ulama of the past, and I'm talking about the earlier ayama, when they talked about this issue, Imam Ahmed, for example, one of the bravest, strong ulama, the Mu'tazila had influenced the Khalifa of the time. Now again, that doesn't mean the Mu'tazila are right or, you know, you know but, right? Obviously, the Mu'tazila were uh, any off. And they had influenced the Khalifa to an aqidah that was the aqidah of kufr. Saying the Quran is makhluk. Yep. Right? Now, Imam Ahmed stood up against that. He raised his voice. But he didn't call for revolutions. He didn't. He could have. He didn't call for protests. He didn't call. Why? Because he saw the greater good. Here, he had the right to. But he saw the greater good for the ummah not to start that bloodshed. Our brothers, many of our young brothers... They don't think through consequences, right? And the uh, imma of the past, they had that wisdom. And the ulema have this wisdom. You know, when you see these revolutions come out, whether justified or not, I'm not even going to get into that. The harm that it brings to the ummah, the massacre, the murder, the worst conditions that come after that is what we don't think about. You know, in the West, uh, I mean, one of the things that I think the West has learned from their own history, and I'm not praising them, I'm just explaining, is they have stopped killing each other over ideologies and over political differences to a certain degree. Right? And there's some element of unity amongst them in, right. in their exactly. secular liberalism. Now again, I'm not saying this to praise them. Right? I want to be clear, because I don't want people to make clips and... Well, they can if they want. I don't care. <laughs> um, right? But if you look at the Muslim principles, we had that. Where the principle was the blood of the Muslim is, is haram. Right? And this is the difference between the Khawarij and the Ahl Sunnah is the Khawarij would make the blood of the Muslim halal. And even in times during Marwan, for example, Abdul Malik bin Marwan, who had some bid'ah, the Marwani bid'as are known, right? The Sahaba didn't call for revolutions against them. Even when the Amawiyah were corrupt, and again, don't don't fool yourself. And the Abbasids uh, and, and the Abbasids and the murders the Abbasids did. I mean, I taught, I don't know if you want to, if you have some time, you can check out the, the Khilafah. We went over some of it, right? But the ulama did not call for revolutions against them. But once it, it happened and it was done deal, Obedience is required, right? Well, of course. And and that's what I'm saying. So when you have somebody... Now, again, I do want to clarify again. There's a lot to clarify. That obedience is only in good and right. 
Meaning if that, even a Khalifa tells you, go torture that alim, you cannot obey them in that. Go celebrate Halloween, you cannot obey them in that. Go open up a bar, you cannot obey them in that. Obedience is only in what Allah has ordered in good and right. Right? We don't obey in haram. Not even our own parents, not the Khalifa, not anybody in haram. No. Right? But if somebody is foot in authority and they're Muslim, right? they make salah, they have the Islamic belief, they don't call towards kufr, they don't any disregard the sharia, even if they are sinful in their implementation, even if they leave out some of the ahkam for their own political or you know, their own desires and so on, we don't call for re revolutions and bloodshed against them. We obey them in the right, not in the wrong. Can we criticize them? Again, the criticism of the Khalifa has its, has its own rules, right? And the ulema of the past... As in what constitutes as rebellion? Well, so, well, how do you do it first? Okay. Right? If you have the ability to advise them privately, then you should. And that's the correct way. Let's right? talk about today's phenomena of criticizing publicly. Actually, well, no, well, again, you know, so, so let, let's talk about today. Right? We have brothers in the West that have no idea what's really going on on the ground in other countries. And they sit around in their comfortable living rooms calling kings and leaders names and because they know they're going to sit comfortably, right? Look, what you say here is going to have an impact on some youth in some other country that might be bloodshed and killing and then you're going to be sitting here drinking coffee with you know some Kafir guy not taking responsibility because you want to seem brave on YouTube. If you're that brave, go to that country and do it. If you, you know, like I, I want to see some of these brothers sitting in the UK and the US that criticize kings and stuff. Go to that country and then do it in front of them. They're not going to. But I won't. They'll arrest me and kill me. Well, okay. Exactly. But then you're, you're not ashamed and you're not worried to say whatever you want here, knowing that your words are going to influence people that are there. And those people, those young brothers might hear what you're saying. And because of the, 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 the fun that you're trying to poke, it might cause, and it has, and we have cases where the people have come out and done acts of violence, and then those people and their families and others have been in very harsh conditions because people are not responsible. As a result of a speaker from the West? I, I'll give you examples offline, inshallah, because okay. I don't want to okay. call okay. people out. Okay. Right? But there are, and, and I can, inshallah, give you names, and you can look up the cases yourself, right? Now, and I mean, these are people that okay. I know personally, so don't think I'm, okay. you know, YouTubing or Googling this. Mm. What I'm saying is, the Sharia has a wisdom. If you want to criticize a ruler, if you want to criticize, there is a method to it. There is a hierarchy to it. There is a, a system to it. There are times you can do it publicly, and Ibn Taymiyyah and Anabui and others, they give khutub at times. But they went through the steps, which we are not doing. Today, most of the brothers that are talking about these, they're, may Allah forgive us, I don't want to assume bad about anybody, but they're not doing it in that method. They're not following the sunnah. They're not following the... And, and this is something we teach in the fiqh books, not something that we just came up with today. Right? And how the sahaba and the tabi'un and the taba tabi'un and others, they followed a system, they tried to correct things in the background first. Today, even nasiha, you know, like, like me and you, if we disagree on something, Nasiha is wanting good for me, not so, trying to get views off my name. Mm -hmm. Nasiha, like if you see me make a mistake, let's say, you know, uh, instead of saying, uh, I said Jim, for example, 
what is the nasiha as you said with yakhi? I mean, I love you for the sake of Allah, you're my brother in Islam. Look, by the way, this is a qaf and not a jeem, whatever. Not that you're like, aha, got him. And if he says anything about me or my people, then I'm going to make videos. Like, like, this is not nasiha. This is you trying to get popular of trying to and he make fun of people or trying to, you know, there's brothers that made videos against me in the UK that when I met them, I was like, Akhi, why don't you just call me? Like, we could have talked. And I didn't even respond to them. Why? Because I'm not in it for the drama. This drama, and, and again, a lot of brothers that talk about, and again, I know people personally, I'm not, I'm not trying to mention people's name because I really don't want to, that talk about king in this country and king in that country. They have no idea what's going on in that country. We... They don't know the situation in the country on the ground. They're sitting here in the West, enjoying their latte, you know, sitting in, in, in a land of kufr more than the kufr in the Muslim countries and, and may, you know, getting the youth riled up without understanding the consequences that come from them. If I were to now posit to you that, look, let's put aside Western commentators, du'at and, and content creators. Let's talk about the fact that the Muslim majority world from Morocco all the way to Indonesia to as north as the Caucasus to the south of Tanzania. There are ulama and movements who are anti-establishment, who are revivalist groups, who have scholars, or they will claim they have scholars. They have activists, du'at, who... who so, so, so what about those folk? This, so, would, this would be now not the issue, right? Well, I mean, depending, right? Meaning that depending what their issue is, what the government issue is, how they're dealing with it, it could be an aqidah issue, it could be a fiqh issue. But the first and foremost thing is, I don't think it's my place to discuss the situation in any of those countries because I really don't know. As a student of politics, I sure. graduated politics. If I, were, if I was to make a general statement, as a Muslim and as a journalist, Muslim first, journalist second, as a general statement, I believe that the vast majority of Muslim countries are not ruling by Allah's law. Okay. It's a fair statement. The vast, I would agree with you. The vast majority of Muslim rulers that we have today um, are despotic and oppressive in certain ways. I could agree with you. When does it become a problem? That already is a problem. It already is a problem. Of course. But the issue is, what's the solution? To have just rulers who will establish Islam. Great. Yeah. Agreed. No disagreement there. How do we get there? That's the difference. What's the difference? The difference is some will say we fight them because okay. they're far. So, no, no, again, so, so, let's stop there, right? Because you said... Because, what are, what are, I'm talking about the, the spectrum of people that would okay. want that change. Hold on, hold on. Yeah. So let, let's take that point by point. You said that we fight them because they're kuffar. I got no problem with that statement. But are they kuffar? Right? That's the question. Now, uh, even if you studied political science and you have a PhD in it, is the... And again, I'm just going to throw a name out because I really don't want to... Is the and I don't even know they have a ruler, right? Is the ruler of uh, Maldives Muslim? Like I, I'm just saying, right? And I, I chose that because it's not a kingdom, and you know yeah. I don't want to hit too close to home for people, right? Well, how would you sitting here know that? You don't know his situation. You don't know what he actually. I mean, unless he makes a clear statement, right? So the local ulama there would know better, who live there, who can have access to him, that understand. Mm -hmm. So why is it my place sitting in San Diego, California to say the king of Amman is Muslim or kafir? I'm just, again, I'm just throwing a name out there. No, not actually discussing the king of Amman, right? It's not. It's not your place. Are you an alim? Are you a mufti? Takfir is very, very serious. How are you throw this kafir word around like it's candy? Let's put kafir aside. Dhalim, fasiq. Dhalim and fasiq. Can you rebel for dhulam and fisk? 
someone says the difference of opinion. Oh, I mean, go back to the the Quran and Hadith, right? Now, what I'm saying is, even a volume, you know, the principle that when you take a volume and bring someone adlam, worse than him. And I mean, I could give you examples of countries where they assassinated people for political Islamic causes and the worst one came next. You see, we need to think through these things, mm-hmm. right? When you talk about somebody being oppressive, almost every king in history will be considered oppressive by somebody else. To some extent, yeah. Right? So again, then you're going to have constant bloodshed in the ummah. Our youth, our thinkers, our people who have this knowledge need to have wisdom. They need to look at the Quran. They need to look at Hadith. They need to look at the works of the early imma and ulema and look at the wisdom of the Sharia. And like I was saying, in the West now, and again, it's not a praise, but they have adopted some Islamic principles, right? Where they will be like, okay, look, you can say whatever, but we don't want to see you out in the street killing people, uh, you know, and, and to an extent, they've brought that development. You can say that from the civil, you can say that as a privileged position of civilizational power. Okay. But how long have our civilizations been around? A thousand plus years. Longer than the West, right? But this constant revolution and bloodshed that we see in the Muslim lands has harmed us a lot, right? I mean, if you look at, I mean, I don't want to give uh, too many examples of actual countries because I don't want to offend people. But if you look at many countries, they have great resources. They're rich in resources. But the political turmoil, constant political turmoil, and everybody revolting and killing and this has made it that the Muslims there are starving today. When they should be richer than the Western country. But Sheikh, the reason why the people are struggling there and starving is because the rulers you are asking me to obey mm-hmm. have allowed multi-billionaire corporations to come and take our resources. Again, and I, I understand that, but let me ask you something. Uh, Do you think the rulers in the West aren't corrupt? They are. They're a bit more you, you're, you're king. And, and again, I'm going to take some liberties here, right? What does he do for your country? Uh, diddly squat to some extent. And so, how much does he make? Some would say tourism. They say he brings in tourism revenue. Really? They say that. Really? You think you. that 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 justifies the billions of, of pounds? Of course not. Okay. Come on. Of course okay. not. So now, yeah. now, you see... Why do we rebel now, against him? Hold on. He gets ripped on social media though. He does. We'll <laughs> get to it. But who's, who's starting an armed revolution here? Nobody. No. Right? Who's out there trying to assassinate him? Nobody. Who is out in the streets killing bobbies and police officers? Well, throw an egg at him, maybe. Yeah, throw an egg at him, right? Yeah. But they're not out there like Muslim countries, you know, with, with or the army taking over, right? If you look at the West and the U.S., which politician's not corrupt? Which politician hasn't sold the U.S. to corporations, right? Are they not China jail- owns most of the U.S. today. Are they not jailing and killing scholars? They're not jailing and killing right. activists? Again, again. Political opposition. Why? Because those... Political activists aren't taking to the streets with guns. And if they do, they are jailed and killed. In the U.S., right? in, in the U.K. Okay, you, you want to put it to a social experiment, right? And it, this sounds like it, a part two of a podcast, to be honest. It does sound like a part two of a podcast, a podcast, inshallah, right? Anyway, point there being, we follow the Sharia. Where the Sharia allows us to rebel, we rebel. Where the Sharia does not allow us to rebel, we do not rebel. I think that's and we leave each situation to the scholars of the land that are best equipped to understand the situation and verify. Last question. And I specifically chose this to be the last question. Go ahead. 
Last March, news went round that you got stabbed. The picture that did the rounds. Yeah, I've seen it. Tens of millions. Now, some of our views might know, but it's this. I've seen it. Yeah, you were there. I was there. My son took the picture. There were some allegations afterwards, mm. where as millions around the Ummah were making dua for you, for your recovery and for your good health, um, there were allegations that came afterwards. Someone even contacted from who? Kuffar. No, no, not just Kuffar. I want to be explicit here. These allegations... That you weren't stabbed and it was a setup and there's no crime police report. Sure. These allegations came from an Islamic phobic website from a man who I faced when I was in Denver and the video is online. And he was a liar and we caught him lying on that video, right? Who claims to be a murtad, who has articles against Islam up and down, right? Now, uh, there's a guy in Chicago or somewhere, Jose or whatever, uh, he, he, he faked a crime and they keep mentioning him. And he went to jail for it. Why? Because it's actually illegal to fake a fake crime, crime yep. right? Am I in jail? No, you're fine. No, right? Big tools. Big tours. <laughs> and I'm going around the U.S., right? Yeah. So if their allegations were true, then I should be in jail. The police should come arrest me for faking a crime. But they didn't. These are Islamophobes. I had Al Jazeera contact me. I had many Islamic newspapers. I had San Diego Union Tribune contact me. They verified the information. They saw the reports. They published those articles. And you can go see them in American newspapers, in Middle Eastern newspapers, in Pakistani newspapers. They verified, checked, and published. Until today, those are up. Alhamdulillah. I've been attacked multiple times, mm -hmm. and they've been on video. Right? This is the same Islamophobic website, right-wing nuts, that had articles making fun of the parents of the children who were killed in school shooting, saying they were actors. There is no amount of evidence that pleases them. I sat with the police. I discussed it with them. Why, did, why is there no report? Of course there's a report. The guy went to jail for it. <laughs> why did they not find it? Because first off, they don't even know my name. Uthman, my name is Uthman. My father's name is Farooq, but that's not my legal name. That's not on my passport. So you go and call police or Uthman and Farooq, they don't know where that is. Of course. Right? Spellings are all off, of course, right? Secondly, they don't know where the attack happened. They're assuming of a video I made the next day trying to GPS map it. Like, what's wrong with these people? Thirdly, they don't even know the, which police department to contact because we have a city of San Diego. I don't live in the city of San Diego. It's the county. But the police that took my report, not even in the city of San Diego, right? Fourthly, the police liaison that I deal with told me, look, these people are trying to get your name. They're trying to get your address. They're trying to cause harm to you. Don't share any information. You have no reason to share information with them. And I'm not going to. Well, alhamdulillah, we're working on a documentary. I went to Malaysia. I met with some people. And we're looking at who to work with. And some of the brothers here, inshallah, we've also been talking about. And we're going to make a documentary about my life for a da'wah. And in that, we're going to have interviews with police officers. We're going to blur them, obviously, for their... Mm -hmm. We're going to have redacted, obviously, taking my personal information out, those reports in there, as a part of the documentary. But I don't need to show that to anybody. Why do I need to prove anything to them? Look, if you get attacked tomorrow, and you have a video on it, and there's pictures on it, and your police is not saying anything about you know, arresting you for it, and your newspaper is verified, and people, some Islamophobe tells you, I want your report number. That that police case is going to have your name. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, they can file a Freedom of Information Act. They can get your address. I got a wife and daughters at home. Are you going to share that information? Of course not. Look, 
I got a scar. I got, I got, I, I, I my kids saw this. You know, uh, this is this is stupidity for them to even dare. And this liar, the one who started this thing, is one guy. Other Islamophobic, Middle Eastern murtad mm. news media that are picking up, they're all anti-Islamic. And there's nobody, no credible newspaper or real reporters reporting on this. This one guy came to Denver when I was there, and he lied about who he is. And we have him on video when I when I told him, "Are you lying?" And we caught him. These are people that are Islamophobes that have their own agenda. I don't need to appease them. Allah knows, police knows, my family knows, I know, the one who attacked me knows. It's enough. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. And that is why I purposely dedicate only three minutes to this particular segment. Sheikh Ismail is an absolute pleasure. It's been my pleasure and I really appreciate your work. And I hope from those that are watching that we will work towards the unity of the Muslim Ummah Inshallah. upon the Quran, upon the Sunnah, and upon the way of the Salaf al-Ummah. And we as Muslims, without getting into this madrasa and that madrasa and this school and that, I think we need to agree that we all believe in the Quran. It's the words of Allah, kalam Allah, ghair makhluq. We all believe in what Allah has said about himself without any denying, without any distortion. We believe in what Allah said about himself. We would agree, right? We, right? we agree that the Prophet Muhammad is the one that Allah chose to be the last of all prophets, the best example, whose sunnah, whose way is binding upon us, right? We would agree that the best of people after them be are the Sahaba, and then the two generations after them in that order, and the great a'imma and ulama like Abu Hanifa and Malik and Shafi and Ahmad, we love them, we respect them, we think they were better than the ulama that came later, right? So we hope that this will bring a unity to the ummah on these principles, inshallah. Jazakumullah Brothers and sisters and friends, I hope you thoroughly enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. I want to remind you all that you can find this show on all the major audio platforms. And if you're watching on YouTube, Remember to like this video, leave a comment, subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. And until next time, Assalamu Alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.